Welcome to Healthy Voyager Radio. I'll be your host, the Healthy Voyager, Carolyn Scott. Thanks for tuning in to Healthy Voyager Radio. I'm your host, Carolyn Scott Hamilton, the Healthy Voyager. Uh, one quick announcement before we get started. If you're in L.A. this weekend, November 6th, this Saturday, come join us at the Roxy for the first ever vegan beer fest. Yep, vegan beer, vegan food, and music all afternoon and uh, all night long. Actually, starts in the afternoon, goes till the evening. At the Roxy on Sunset Strip. To purchase advanced tickets, which is highly recommended to make sure you get in, visit losangelesvegan.com. Check it out, and I hope to see you there because it sounds like a pretty good time. I've been really excited for today's show for some time now. While it's not a show that's technically about vegan health or eco tips, it's about survival and what's more healthy than staying alive, right? Have you ever wondered how you might survive a blizzard, an earthquake, or even some crazy accident like the Titanic? And uh, I don't know if you've heard about this movie, 127, I think it's 127 minutes, 127 hours, that movie about that guy that was uh, mountain climbing and got his arm stuck in between two mountains and he had to kind of sever off his own arm to survive and he did. I mean, these things happen. So I don't know if you've thought about them, but I know living in L.A., being trapped in a parking garage or under a bridge during an earthquake always crosses my mind. And I'm pretty sure one of the tips is not to panic, but come on, who's not going to panic in that kind of situation? Well, my guest today is a wilderness medicine and survival expert. So he's got all sorts of tips and tricks on how to deal with the worst case scenario type situations, as well as just preparedness tips for all sorts of, um, I guess, um, environmental things that could happen. So I think that's pretty cool. And with the upcoming winter season, there are many accidents that can be avoided with just some basic knowledge of how you may be able to take care of yourself um, or your family if you're ever placed in such an unfortunate spot. I mean, how many stories have we heard about hikers getting lost in the mountains, uh, especially like when it's starting to get cold and freezing to death or even families who've been snowed into their cars or homes? It's scary and maybe far-fetched, but yes, it happens, and it doesn't hurt to be prepared and to have some mental tools in your arsenal for those just-in-case kind of moments. I mean, hey, look, look at Katrina. New Orleans residents probably never thought that something like that could happen, and even worse, didn't think that their government would fail them as monumentally as it did. So every step you take to keep you and your family safe in every situation increases your odds of survival just like tenfold. Uh, like I say, even about your health, you know, when I talk about that, that taking an active role in your health is key to a longer, healthier life because depending on others, whether it's doctors or the media, etc., and just ignoring it altogether just means that you aren't in control. Same goes for knowing what to do in a pinch. I guess that 80s G.I. Joe cartoon was right. Knowing is half the battle. So, you know, getting all the information that you can and having it kind of ready to go is is helpful and only takes a little bit of time. So without further ado, let's take a short break and then meet the guy whose information may save our lives someday, Mr. Greg Davenport. Ah. 
Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. Oh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. What are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. It's been a long time since we've had an adventure in the forest. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. You're right. I should get out. Yeah, the forest is not that far away. Hey, Mom, come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Healthy Voyager Radio. My guest today is a wilderness medicine and survival expert. You may have seen him all over TV or seen his books at your favorite bookstore. Here to get us in shape for all sorts of worst-case scenarios is survival guru Greg Davenport. Hello, Greg. Hi, Carolyn. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. I think this topic is something that people think about but don't necessarily do anything about it. You know, you'll sit around and say, oh, what would you do in an earthquake? Or what would you do in this if you were trapped somewhere or you got lost hiking? And people don't actually really think, I should really kind of know what to do in that situation. So I'm glad to have you here. Yeah, it's good to be here. You know, I look at uh, survival or learning survival as kind of like a car or health insurance. It's something you really need to have and it's good to know, but you hope you never have to use it. Right, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. You want to you want to be prepared, but you hope it never happens. <laughs> exactly. So, tell us how you became a wilderness medicine and survival expert. Was this something you'd done your whole life? Were you a Boy Scout, or did you just did something happen where you thought I should know this stuff? Well, as a youth, like many youths, I was uh, a Boy Scout. I didn't excel by any means. Uh, I've lived mm-hmm. rural my whole life, and. And really, the catalyst that moved me into the survival arena occurred when I entered the military. Um, I was a survival instructor, or otherwise known as a SEER instructor, which stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And um, it was the foundation that kind of moved me forward in my concepts and, and uh, the algorithms that I use and the beliefs I have on, on global survival uh, that I advocate today. Um, when I left the military, it was actually 1991, and 10 days later, after leaving the military, I um, was at the University of Washington uh, in their medical program attending a physician assistant school. And uh, I graduated from that and, and went to uh, rural uh, clinics and hospitals and ERs, which I've kind of worked at throughout the last 20 years. Uh, but I never really moved away from my survival background. I actually started uh, putting pen to paper writing my concepts, honing, honing my concepts, honing my skills, and then uh, started uh, running my own program, which I, I ran for, you know, uh, quite some time. Uh, and it has just kind of evolved. I think that, you know, survival skills, you kind of have to have a great amount of suffrage to really appreciate them, and I believe you train as you do. So, you know, it's one thing to read it in a book, but it's another thing to go out there and actually experience what it's like to be sleep-deprived or food-deprived or, you know, hurt or... or um, you know, scared, cold, miserable, um, and it really uh, teaches you what works and what doesn't. Uh, you know, over the years, one of the things I found is there's a lot of literature out there that's really got bad information in it, and it's because people have just repeated previous literature without experiencing um, whether or not it works. And, and that's what I've tried right. to do in my time is determine whether things work or, or not. That's excellent. Yeah, you're right. There are a lot of people who, uh, I guess, theorize and tell people what to do, but they've never actually done it. So who knows if that's going to work. 
how often do you put yourself in certain situations to kind of test it? And do you, I know you have a wife and kids. Do you take them with you or is this all Greg? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, back back in the early and mid eighties when I was becoming a SEER instructor, I actually had the worst times of my life Uh, for about seven and a half months. I had to survive in uh, various climates around the world with extremely limited gear and under extreme harsh conditions in fact, my first trip I went on was about a month long, and I lost uh, almost 30 pounds during that time. It was it was a pretty pretty miserable existence. And out of the out of the group that I went with, um, we only had two in my group that returned back and continued on with training out of 11. And out of the whole class that went, we had an 80% attrition rate that first trip, um, which we lost about 5% more uh, within the next six months. So. You know, I started really harsh, and I wouldn't say that I go back into the extreme harshness of my early days because um, that's something that you experience and you learn from. And even though I put myself in hard situations, I've honed my skills enough to where it's never as bad as it was then, <laughs> or at least mm-hmm. in my memory it's not. I do go out fairly regular. Um, I have, I have uh, through an instruction process uh, for other people, but also for myself, I go out on a regular basis. I have recently started to pass the baton on. I'm getting older, um, and I, but I also have started a young family. And believe it or not, which you may believe, I don't know, I'm 51 years old, and uh, I have two sets of twins, age three years old, uh, girls, and age wow. one-year-old. So our trips right now are somewhat conservative compared to my history. We go out, but yet I do bring some modern comforts of life. We actually had a show pitch a year ago, which I'm still kind of interested in, which was a survivor dad to survivor dude. And it took me, took me from the mountains and rock faces and cold environments, and now has me changing poopy diapers. <laughs> <laughs> That's survival for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I still play with it. I, I'll never get away from it. I'll, I'll be doing it until the day I die. I'm sure. Um, it's just whether or not I take more comforts with me or have a goat pack it in for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> difference, you know. Well, I'm sure it's de- it's it's definitely information that your your kids are gonna want to know. I'm sure your boys and your girls are gonna be uh, interested in in being outdoorsy folks. So it's it's all good stuff. I agree with that. I think that uh, we've lost that adventure in our families, and it's very unfortunate. You know, I mean, for for a long time, we've heard that a family that, you know, prays together or or plays together, you know, stays together. And I'm a firm believer in that. If we could get away from the TV and the Nintendo and and, uh, get get outside and experience that laughter and that that camaraderie and, and just that bonding experience, it makes such a difference. And in the love uh, through the family from husband to wife, wife to husband, and, and parents to children. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be hardcore adventure like I've done. It can just be going on a day hike. It's just it's just so valuable. But I think in what I teach, it's important that when these people go on these day hikes that, that they all return home. And there's nothing worse than a story of a, of a family going on a day hike and, and an 8-year-old child disappearing and never being seen again. And and these things happen every year. So I strive, and, and that's probably the biggest movement I've had in the last couple of years, is I strive to try to create that uh, family safety net that keeps those kids in nature but yet brings them home safe. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We hear about those stories all the time. And later on in the in the show, I want to chat with you about uh, 
where where people have gone wrong. In fact, there are films about about these, like you know, Into the Wild, the Chris McCandless story. You know what he did wrong, <laughs> and uh, and then you know, one hundred twenty seven hours. What happened was definitely a mistake, but what he could have done differently. So. Um, yeah, I can't wait to talk about that. And, and then when you incorporate children into the mix, that's where it can get a little funky. So I'm excited to, to get get there. But what services do you offer as a wilderness medicine and survival expert? I know you've written books and you've done TV stuff, but, but what do you do um, when people come to you? Well, at this point, I, I pretty much only run corporate or government trips or platform teaching. So you know, if a corporation or a government or a group of people come to me, um, I will design the trip based on what their needs are. So, you know, for example, I've done significant training for the helicopter rescue swimmers on the West Coast from Canada to Mexico, and they do a lot of open water survival uh, rescues, but they've been doing a lot of inland rescues, and they hadn't received any good inland training when, when they started coming to me. So for them, you know, the the trip involved moving beyond just first aid and uh, rescue and moving into the whole concept of what's wilderness first aid or wilderness survival medicine. And I'm a firm believer that if you can survive, that is a big aspect of the medical component needed to stay alive and get home, not only as a rescue swimmer, but also as a... Um, uh, a rescuer or a survivor of whatever the environment is. And then there's been other organizations, the Department of Transportation uh, beyond that, and then, which I guess are not DOT anymore, uh, Department of Energy, which you know, runs power lines and so on, uh, teaching them winter survival. And then uh, various, various uh, search and rescue teams are the biggest organizations I work with. I still do quite a bit of platform presentations for corporations. And I, and I do touch on more than just survival. I believe that over the years, the 30 years of experience, um, I touch quite a bit on uh, stress abatement. Um, I believe mm-hmm. that one of the keys to survival is the will to survive, and that's, that's mind, what your mind does to you during that environment and how you overcome those preconceived limits and fears. And uh, I bring that to the table when I talk to, to people about how they can deal with stress and how they can overcome their limits and push themselves a little bit further, provided they want to. Um, or sometimes how to let go and learn to relax and enjoy life. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're right that the panic is probably the worst part of of that situation of being caught in a stressful situation because it it completely clouds your 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 ideas of what to do or or everything that you should be doing because you're so scared. Right. I, I'm a firm believer in the eighty twenty. Uh, principle, um, which 80% of survival is the will to survive, and that involves being able to formulate your thoughts and use a clear thought process to get from point A to point B, also understanding what your priorities are, but then 10% is um, uh, knowledge and 10% is equipment, so, you know, without that will, um, you can have the most knowledge in the world and all the equipment in the world, and your ability to overcome that obstacle is going to be significantly limited. Absolutely. So, what are your books about? I know you've written six different books, are they all uh, about different types of situations or uh, what, yeah, what are they about? <laughs> Sometimes I compare my books to Ambien, but <laughs> <laughs> don't tell my publisher I said that, but, <laughs> hey, you know, my, my first book, uh, Wilderness Survival, which is now in second edition, I actually wrote that as a textbook for the classes I was teaching in the, in the 90s. And, um, you know, when I looked out there, really, there weren't any in what I considered uh, appropriate textbooks that would, that would go from point A to point Z and give people guidelines 
um, to, and how to meet their survival needs. So that's how I started. So Wilderness Survival uh, has actually gone to second edition. It's been printed in multiple countries in different languages and uh, is used by quite a few universities in their outdoor programs. And I consider it the staple uh, for people who want a book related to that spells out the concepts of wilderness survival. And it, it revolves around an algorithm that I use. And, and the algorithm is uh, maintain life and return home. And within that, maintain life covers personal protection, which means we need to know how to deal with our clothing, shelter, and fire needs. It also covers sustenance, which is how to, how to understanding our water needs and our food needs and how to procure those. It deals with health, which is our, our mental health, our traumatic injuries, environmental injuries, and those are all about maintaining life. And then on the return home side, it deals with signaling, teaching people how to signal with man-made and natural resources, and also travel, which for most cases people shouldn't be doing. But if they are going to do, um, I have a pretty extensive uh, section on travel in there. And every book that I have... I use that same algorithm, which is, you know, maintain life and return home. Because um, my other books, uh, I have one on wilderness living, which is primitive skills, which is fun to do, especially as family, uh, but really isn't wilderness survival. But my other books on survival, um, I have environment-specific ones, one on cold weather, one on desert, and one on uh, open and coastal, open water and coastal environments. You know, they, they mock the first book in the fact that they have this, not mock it, but mimic it, <laughs> Be a better word, <laughs> in the sense that they, they cover the algorithm. So there is some repetition in these books, but the other books are environment-specific, so they go into more detail in the specific environments. And, and the last book that I did was an advanced navigation book. And to be honest, it's extremely um, detailed in navigation skills that probably most people really don't need. Um, but it's one of those that people really want to push the limits and learn you know, all the mathematic processes and extra fun stuff to know about navigation that, that would be worthwhile. But every book I have has a navigation chapter in it that is perfectly adequate for teaching people how to do that skill in the wilderness. The goal in the book is to give people an algorithm or kind of a cookbook process, but recognizing that even though their survival needs are always constant, the order in which you prioritize them and meet them will change depending on your situation environment. And then also how you improvise to meet the needs is going to change given on what you have and what Mother Nature is going to provide you. Cool. I think that's, I think, well, I think Boy Scouts should all have that for sure and young men in general because I think those are the, the, the main, your main market of, of who's going out to do these sorts of things. I don't know too many women who do it, but I think your book, right. books are definitely necessary for that. Yeah, hey, now let's not be sexist here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, all these movies coming out, like I said, like, the, you know, 127 Hours and, and Chris McCandless, like, usually it's like coming of age, the boy needs to, like, get out in the, you know, get out in the world and and find themselves type situation. Us girls just want to, you know, travel and, and eat and shop, I guess. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, when I teach young young high school students, the ones that do the best are always the women. And I think the reason they do the best, and maybe the reason they don't find themselves in such bad situations is they listen and they learn. And the guys come into things a lot of times thinking they know everything, so they have to fail first before they're willing to start listening to learn. Right, right, right. They, yeah, like, I'm the guy, I'm built for this, you know, <laughs> instead of just saying I should I should really be prepared before I do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's let's get down to it. Winter's around the corner, and for some, they're going to endure blizzards and cold and snow. And for others, well, 
here in Southern California, they say it's the rainy season, but I'm from Florida and it doesn't get too rainy here. But, you know, here we do get mudslides. So whether you're caught in severe snowstorms or maybe possibly getting caught in some sort of flood or mudslide, what, do you, what are your tips for cold weather storms? I'll tell you, my tips, um, regardless of the environment, for the lay public is always going to remain around three basic concepts, and it's going to be avoid exposure, stay hydrated, and signal for help. So avoiding exposure is, is basic. It's simple. It, it revolves around your clothing and your shelter, and I consider a shelter an extension of your clothing. So clothing, you know, if people are going to be in cold weather, they should dress for their environment, of course. They should be wearing layers of bait. They shouldn't be wearing cotton because cotton collapses if it gets wet. I mean, hopefully your clothes don't get wet, but it collapses and it can't trap dead air anymore. So it loses its insulation quality. So a base layer like some type of polyester or silk or something along that line that will wick moisture away, retain some of its insulation quality when wet, uh, which, again, you shouldn't be doing. And then a middle layer, which is your insulating layer, which could be wool, it could be some type of uh, polyester such as fleece, um, or even these uh, newer um, jackets that we have, uh, the soft core jackets, uh, it can be a middle layer. And then an outer layer like Gore-Tex or some type of shell. And realizing that all these layers need to have some capacity to wick moisture away except for the outer shell and still trap dead air, which is really what insulates us. The outer shell protects us from the wind and moisture. So if we're wearing these layers to include a hat, which avoids heat loss from the head, gloves, good boots, you know, and socks, if we're wearing these layers, um, we can protect ourselves from cold weather pretty well. If we start to overheat, let's say, for example, we get stuck and we're digging out and we start to overheat, we should take off that middle layer, put that outer layer back on so that we're not sweating because if we're sweating, we're getting our clothes wet. And, and, again, getting close wet is not good. Getting wet is not good because we lose body heat 26 times faster when we're wet than we do if we're dry. And then, of course, let's say we get stuck. You know, we can't get out. I always think of a shelter as an extension of the clothing. And what I mean by that is a shelter protects us from wind and moisture. But also, if it's small enough just for ourselves and our equipment, it helps trap more dead air, which uh, eventually warms up, and that dead air will help uh, keep us warm too. So that's avoiding exposure. Staying hydrated is really important as part of part of the uh, main survival concepts in the respect that you can only live a couple days without water. Some people like to throw out the, the three-day rule, but really that's not true. It can be two days. It can be four days. It can sometimes even be five days on the extremes. It depends on how hydrated you are when you go into the situation and then how much uh, moisture you're losing given the situation, how much you're breathing out, urinating out, sweating out, or whatever it might be. Um, you know, if somebody goes into an outing where they're, uh, they drank a lot of alcohol the night before, they're more prone to dehydration mm-hmm. than somebody who doesn't. So staying hydrated in any means, hopefully you got water with you. If you don't, then you need to be procuring water, and, and uh, there's many ways to do that. We can talk about that if you'd like. And then signaling for help. I mean, you know, how many people get lost and don't signal for help? It makes no sense. Even the hitchhiker on the street knows that if they don't put a thumb out or a cardboard sign with some print on it, nobody's going to give them a ride. So... Mm-hmm. If you're lost in the wilderness, somehow you've got to draw attention to your location. So if you can avoid exposure, stay hydrated, signal for help, hopefully you'll get out of it within 72 hours. Return home and have a nice campfire and a little bit of cocoa. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yes, tell us about how to procure, procure your own water if you happen to be stuck somewhere and you ran out or you didn't bring it with you. Right. Well, every environment is going to present a little bit of a different twist in how you're going to do that. You know, you you said cold environment. So cold environment to me could mean uh, many different things. Uh, if if I'm in a snow environment, 
you know, or an area where I have snow, there's a couple ways I can procure that. One, I don't really want to eat the snow because, two, it's going to lower my body core temperature, which I don't want to do. And then it requires body's energy and water from in my body to warm me back up. Um, and number two, um, I, can, I, I can easily melt that snow and get the value from that that water with uh, without doing that. So if it's snow, simple simple process. If I have a container of some type, I'm going to, of course, procure it in a container. If uh, if it's a canteen, uh, not a canteen, old military talk coming out, but if it's an Nalgene bottle mm-hmm. or something like that, and I got a little bit of water in there, I can put snow in there and I can agitate it, and the friction should start to break down those crystals and turn it to water. Or I could put it between the layers of my clothing, not directly on my skin, but between the layers of my clothing, let my body heat start to melt that. Um, you know, other things I could do, if we remember the book Alive, which is about the uh, Uruguayan rugby team that uh, mm-hmm. crashed. I mean, if people don't realize, but they actually put snow on top of the metal of the airplane and let the sun melt that, and then they funneled it down into containers. So they knew they shouldn't be eating the snow, and they were able to melt that using the heat and the uh, that radiated off of the, the uh, airplane uh, fuselage. So, so there are things that can be done, but snow is definitely a resource. Rain is another resource, you know. So in the snow environment, we talk about the Uruguayan rugby team, but how about... Um, the disaster that hit New Orleans a couple years back. I mean, very big disaster, yet people were dying in their homes, and, and there's there's things they could have been doing as far as signaling, but also for water. I mean, there was water all around them. They could have gotten water from the gutters, you know, of the house. There was all kinds of collection devices that, that were around that could have easily given them water to stay hydrated. Um, you know, so what we have to do is we have to start thinking outside of the box. Unfortunately, most of us live in a city, and we don't know how to get water unless it's coming from a faucet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in nature or survival, the faucet's just not there. So we have to think what other methods are available for us to procure that water. You know, in a desert environment, if I had some type of non-poisonous plush green vegetation, you know, I could definitely, if I had a clear plastic bag, and, and maybe you don't have these things. I'm just throwing stuff out because every, every situation is going to dictate a different way of meeting that need. But let's say you had a clear plastic bag, you know. You could put that bag around the non-poisonous vegetation and let the sun hit it, you know, with a rock to create a lower spot in the bag, let the sun hit that throughout the day. And then before dusk, you could drink that uh, condensated moisture out of the bag. I mean, you know, so, th- so these are various options that I'm bringing up. But, you know, it's all going to depend on the given situation. It's going to depend on your ingenuity and what kind of resources you're able to uh, put together to create that uh, source. Recognizing your need is so important. Improvising your man-made and materials, natural materials is really important. Looking at different ways to meet that need is important. Then picking one based on which one's going to be the best use of your equipment, your time, and your materials. Um, you know, so that's the process. So water is going to depend, but it, we, we can make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you, you brought up Katrina, and I definitely wanted to bring that up. Um, and you're right, there was water all around them, but a lot of it was obviously contaminated. Um, but you did bring up a good point. They could have gotten it, I guess, from, you know, rainfall or gutters. But how would you, if you're in a situation where you know that the water is probably contaminated, how do you kind of make, you know, get around that? Well, it was a pretty big storm that went on at Katrina. I mean, they could have put out buckets or anything, you know. I mean, there's so many different different methods of doing that, but they could have just used the gutters uh, for, for water sources. Now, are the gutters dirty? Yes. Is there a potential chance you're going to get sick? Yes. 
um, we always have to weigh risk versus benefit. One thing I do know is that if I don't get water in me within several days, I'm probably going to perish. And uh, I, I think we're going to probably talk about a situation where that occurred here in a little bit. But the um, the uh, so yeah, I would put out containers, any type of cooking devices I had. I would even create funnels. I might even break a gutter down so that it would funnel water down into a container I have, thus decreasing the amount of time it took to to get that water. And you know, water being contaminated, what can I do for that? Well, it depends on the contamination. I mean, if it's got diesel fuel in it, that could, that can be a big problem. <laughs> I might want to avoid that and look at other options. But if if the water is just contaminated with a bunch of mucky mucky muck, you know, well then I can just I can just pour it through a porous, a very fine porous cotton T-shirt or something like that, and it might look dirty, um, but you know it's still going to be something that I could get down if I was able to build a fire, which I'm going to be able personally I'm going to be able to do. I don't know about some people, but you know think about what's in that house. That house is just full of firewood. You got all mm-hmm. the firewood possibly ever want in that house. It's not like you're going to move back into it after the event occurs on something, some disaster of that nature. So I could build a fire and purify my water quite easily. Um, you know, if I was in a desert environment, I found some stale, stagnant, nasty water, or if I was on a shoreline and I was at least one dune beyond the ocean water and I was digging down or I found a stagnant place, I can always dig a hole about three feet away and let that water kind of filter through the ground into that hole and let it sit overnight and then ladle it out in the morning. So there's options. And, again, every every situation is going to change the way that this need is met. So, yeah, thinking about that, like, open water situation, just like the um, – I can't remember the name of the ship that, that went down, uh, but uh, those men, some men survived, but the rest either died from drinking salt water and the rest died from shark attacks. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> The SS, I can't remember which one it is, but let's say you're – I can't recall the, the name of it, but I know what you're talking about. And, and there were survivors, but unfortunately many people perished to, shark, uh, to sharks and, uh, or just drowned or, or perished because of consumption of seawater, but yeah. So let's yeah. say you are in a, a boat crash or a Titanic-type situation – what do you do in open water like that? If you're just floating in the water? If you're just floating around waiting waiting for someone to find you, how do you stay alive well, until you're well, found? Let me, let me clarify your scenario. Am I in a life raft or am I just floating with an anti-exposure shoe? Uh, and, uh... Okay, in a life raft, I, I would imagine that's easier. But let's say you're floating. What do you do? <laughs> if I'm, if I'm, if I'm in an anti-exposure suit and that's all I have on and that's keeping me warm and afloat, I'm praying because, you know what, there's not much I can do. I'm going to, if I have a signal mirror on me, I'm going to pull that signal mirror out and I'm going to be scanning the horizon continuously hoping somebody catches a flash off of that signal mirror. Um, you know, if I'm just in an anti-exposure suit, I'm probably going to have such limited resources available to me that pretty much signaling and keeping my faith and, and uh <laughs> uh, praying is about all I can do. If if I'm in a life raft, however, most life rafts, six-man, seven-man life rafts, or even bigger, have a survival kit in them, and I'm going to utilize that survival kit to meet my needs. And I'm going to recognize what those needs are, and 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 they're very simple. They're going to have either they're going to have some form of water source for me. It's either going to be in cans or bags, or they're going to have a, a solar steel that I can deploy and use condensation from seawater to create water from. 
Um, you know, so so those are some means, but I'm going to get that going right away. Number two, they're going to have signaling devices like a signaling mirror or something like that. I'm going to use the signal mirror from the life raft and scan the horizon on a regular basis. Um, you know, number three, they're probably going to have some component of, uh, of travel available to me, either in a sea anchor, which helps me to use the natural current to travel. Um, that's probably going to be about it. And uh, what I'm going to do is if I have a concept of where I am, which I would, I'm going to either travel towards the uh, rain, rain region, land, or ship lanes because those create my biggest chances of getting rescued. Um, and, you know, that's it. So I'm going to take care of my exposure needs, but I'm going to try to put something between me and the bottom of the raft. I'm going to try to uh, keep layers on or off, but make sure at least one layer is over my skin so that I, I protect myself from hot and cold. I'm going to stay hydrated. I'm going to signal for help, and I'm going to make an attempt to travel to one of my three uh, criteria areas. Those are all very good tips because those are th- – like, obviously, you think – I imagine water is the hardest thing to come by when you're in the middle of, of the sea. But, yeah, you're right, condensation, and, and hopefully it rains, then uh, I guess you can you can get by. I hate open water survival, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've done a lot of shark chumming. <laughs> oh, man. I, yeah. I, I, I spent several days out in the open ocean uh, in a life raft, and I spent most most of my time, it seemed like most of my time, my head hanging over the side. <laughs> uh, <laughs> still yeah, that, that one seems the most hopeless, I guess, if you've, you know, at least when you're on dry land, you can walk somewhere. You can you can keep walking if you if you have the sustenance to do it. But man, if you're stuck in the ocean, you know, just floating, by, hoping somebody uh, finds you. Well, there's a yeah, lot of people who keep walking, and they just keep walking further and further away from rescue. You know. Mm, that's true too. That's people very true. Real quick. <laughs> Well, how about for people like me who live in earthquake land, right? So, right. fine, we live in a metropolis, but, you know, if the big one hits, which they keep saying every year, oh, we're due for the big one, we're due for the big one, all hell will break loose and it will be the wilderness. What do What are your tips for earthquake survival, for the big one survival, depending on where you're located at the time of, of impact, so to speak? Well, first I got to disclose that by no means would I ever consider myself an earthquake specialist. So, if any of your listeners are, <laughs> I'm sure they would have any critique about me saying I was, and I'm not. So, you know, the biggest thing to me about earthquakes isn't so much about what happens with the earthquake, because we know, except for the grace of God, in those situations such as tsunami, an earthquake, or, or something like that, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna, you can die. I mean, the big beam comes down and it hits you on the head. That's just the way it goes. You know, if you can't get away from that wave, that's the way it goes. So, if you survive this event, your needs remain the same. This is something that I've, I've been preaching for years, at least uh, 25 plus years. Is it doesn't matter if I'm in a tsunami, an earthquake, or if I'm on Everest. The key is my needs are always constant. And so this holds true in an earthquake, too. If you don't get hurt by debris or, or whatever, you know, could possibly happen to you in that environment, it, it still boils down to those same principles, avoiding exposure, staying hydrated, and signaling for help. Um, you know, now, if we're talking long-term survival, and the, the three things I'm giving you there are for short-term, 
if we're talking long-term survival, which sometimes these natural disasters can turn into, I mean, if we look at Katrina alone, those people spent a long time uh, waiting to be rescued, and they had to meet other needs besides those three I mentioned. You know, in long-term survival, we really have to start thinking more about sustenance as a possible, you know, thing that we need. Sustenance, let me go beyond that because we already talked about water. Water is part of sustenance. But, but food is something we want to start considering. Now, we can live a long time without food, but it's something we want to start considering if we're starting to hit two, three-week time frame because it's going to do a couple things at two, three weeks. Some of your listeners are going, ah, I can't go 48 hours. But trust me, you can go two, three weeks. <laughs> so, but we have to think about, you know, what sustenance our food does for us. And, it, and it's going to do a couple of things. One, it's going to motivate us. And two, it's going to give us some nutrients that help re- regenerate our bodies and help us to uh, push ourselves a little bit further. So there's a point where we need to start thinking about that and getting that on board. And when I advocate for food, I usually start small. I mean, most people I see say, you know, well, I'm just going to kill me a deer, you know, I'll butcher it up and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the reality of that is pretty slim. You know, now if you have your rifle, you know, and uh, some people have rifles and guns and they're going to carry them, if you have those things, well, yeah, your chances of procuring game are, are going to be increased. But for most people, they just don't have those in their houses and, and they have to look at other means of procuring that food. So... You know, if you even try to snare a deer or something like that, you know, let's say you do snare it, good luck trying to kill it because <laughs> that animal yeah. is going to hurt you bad when you start coming up close. So in reality, if the stores are empty and there's no relief systems out there that are passing out food, which it seems like there always is anymore, then you, I start thinking small. So I start to think about grubs. I start to think about slugs. I start to think about, you know, uh, mealworms. <laughs> And earthworms, and those are great food sources. And then I move up the chain a little bit. I start to think about snakes. I start to think about fish, uh, frogs. You know, these are various things that I'm going to start to think about eating because my chances of procurement go way up with the small game, uh, you know, such as the bugs and the reptiles and the, uh, the fish. And then I'm even going to, if I'm getting more close to this nature thing, if I'm in the city, and, and I don't advocate this unless it's a real disaster, um, mice become fair game for food, so do rats, um, squirrels, squirrels, you know, all these things are fair game for food. And I just recommend that if we go, if people go with small game or even with the uh, little bugs that they cook these things because they can carry parasites and other disease. So, you know, the best way to do it is to cook them if you can. Um, but that's what I'm going to add to the avoid exposure, stay hydrated, and signal for help. I might also add, depending on the time frame, travel. And I don't advocate this in the wilderness because if you're lost, you don't know where you are. And one of, that's one of my criteria for traveling is you have to know where you are. But, you know, if you're in a big city and everybody kind of has an idea where they are and they know what the road structure is, I mean, you can travel where you think you're going to have more services available to you, such as a hospital or community centers and so on. Um, you know, so those would be those would be things that I would advocate in addition. But in that travel, I would be packing gear that would meet those three to four basic things: avoiding exposure. I'd make sure I have my clothing with me, some type of shelter. Um, I would make sure that I brought a water source, some type of container to carry it in, some means of purifying water again. And I would carry certain signaling devices with me in case I needed those. And as a minimum, signal should be a whistle and a signal mirror. Uh, they affect more rescues than probably any other device out there. And then, um, you know, for me, I'm going to be carrying some snare devices and other things to procure my, my small game. So I know, I know for us living in, in Southern California, people tell you to have your earthquake kick ready here at home, and some people even have it in their cars, which is probably smart in case you are caught somewhere. Um, yep. 
Carolyn, if you look at those kits, they meet these basic needs. So if I were to break it down, those kits are going to cover your clothing, your shelter, and possibly fire needs. Those kits Mm -hmm. are going to cover your water and food needs, and those kits are going to cover first aid needs for you. Those kits are going to have some type of signaling device in them, and usually those kits have some type of travel mechanism. So it's the size of the kit that varies what will be in it. So in your house, you may have blankets and, and, you know, things like that for your shelter and clothing and warmth need, you know, your personal protection. You might have big containers of water and various dehydrated foods and all kinds of first aid kits and big signaling devices like aerial flares and so on. Whereas in the car, you're going to have a scaled down version of that. And then in your, in your pant pocket, a much scaled down version, but mm-hmm. yet things that you can carry that will meet those needs. So these kits don't vary. In what the, and that's what I advocate in all my books is these are your needs. You know, so depending on your situation, that's going to dictate what you use to meet them. So, yeah, have a big kit in your house, but also don't get sidetracked just to that kit. Recognize that every dresser drawer you have in that house, every kitchen drawer, every cupboard that you have in that house has things in it that can be used to meet those needs. So don't, don't get honed in to, oh, I've got this kit and that's what I'm going to use. Well, use it, sure, but look around the whole house for what can meet your need. Yeah, you for sure. What those, you have to understand what your needs are to really get that into a conceptual um, process otherwise you, you know you're just you're playing around you're not really you're not really taking it serious if you don't understand your needs you're not taking it serious in my opinion well talking about taking it serious like like these these films that have come out about these these young men who are you know finding themselves uh one one lived to tell the story the other one didn't uh my one of my husband's favorite stories is into the wild the chris McCandless story and and uh, which is funny, like, I think it's a great story, but it, coming from a woman's perspective, it's so funny. I'm like, why would he do that? Why would he, you know, but a, I guess a guy feels the need at a young age to kind of, you know, push himself to the limit. What would you say to to young men or even young men, women who want to kind of do this sort of adventure type of situation and not make the same mistakes that someone like him made? Number one, do it. I say, number one, do it. But first, before you do it, learn, 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 educate. The problem with Chris McCandles and, and Aaron Ralston, Aaron had, has a pretty good education behind him. And Chris, I, I read his book so long ago, I can't remember everything, but I think he was a young, adventurous man who really didn't do any good studies on what to do. Aaron's was an unfortunate event that could happen to anybody. That was a grace of God issue. Um, with yeah, Boulder, You know, the boulder comes down, traps his arm. What are you going to do? I mean, who could predict yeah. that? Um, and he didn't do anything different than anybody else does. He was mountain bike riding. Who's going to call people before you go out mountain bike riding? I mean, we should. We should always tell people where we're going. But, gee whiz, hindsight's great. The survival industry really nailed Aaron on that and said, Aaron, you're an idiot because you didn't tell anybody what you were doing. But come on, seriously, we all do that. <laughs> it's part of life. You're driving down the road, hey, I'm going to go hike up that hill. I mean, that's what happens. That was just an unfortunate <laughs> But Chris McCandles, is McCandles, is that how you say his name? Is that right? I think yeah. it's McCandless. McCandless, yeah. Uh, it's been a long time. You know, with him, he could have definitely benefited from some training. I mean, he was going out for the adventure of a lifetime. I mean, if, if he would have been successful in that and written a book, everybody would have just said, wow, man, look at what you did. But he didn't. He perished. I think that if he would have done some basic training before he went out, if he would have attended some survival courses, and if he would have, if he would have, pushed himself from a crawl 
to a walk, to a run, to a leap. He would have been very successful in his adventure, but Chris went out with limited training, limited resources, and he got caught on the wrong side of that river, and he couldn't get back across. And, you know, if he would have just had something with him, like a a good map with the outlay of the land and understood how to read a map and compass, and if he would have understood what what his needs were, you know, his personal protection, clothing, shelter, fire, staying hydrated and and well-fed and signaling for help and and understanding that he walked in on a trail, so knowing that there was a way to get back out of there. He knew where he was. He knew how to get out, but yet he had to get across that river. If he would have had a map and compass, understood the value of what his personal needs were, what his survival needs were, I believe he could have came out of that situation alive. But he, he made a grave error in, in not training himself and not understanding what his needs were or, or not being prepared for where he went into because he just didn't understand the lay of the land and didn't ha- have a map and compass or didn't know how to read it to the extent that he was able to get out of there. Um, and so that's the key. I say to every listener out there, man, go enjoy the adventure. Just do it. But first, first, learn how to stay alive. Learn how to do your skill I mean, nobody goes to a calculus class and starts doing calculus. You know, they do They do everything before, algebra, pre-calc, and then they hit calc, right? Maybe there's some others in there. I don't know. But um, we, don't, we, we shouldn't, you know, we don't expect our kids to, you know, be born running down the street. They, you know, they got to lay around for a little while. They got to crawl. We got to kind of guide them in their walk, you know, and then they start running. And that's the way outdoor adventure should be. We should learn what we're doing before we put ourselves at risk. And to respect the situation that the wilderness is, uh, has got a lot more on us than we've got on it. And yeah. uh, to, really, to really know what you're getting yourself into and, and being able to, to deal with it. The wilderness doesn't care if we're there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do, it's going to do what it's going to do, man. And, you know, oh, you know, how many times have people been caught in those bad situations? That's what makes the news, you know. Oh, yeah, all the time here, all the time. Someone went hiking and got lost. We hear those all the time here in Southern California, all the time. So-and-so was in Joshua Tree, and one guy survived out there for six days. He just sat and waited, uh, which was a remarkable story. And then someone just goes on a regular hike, like a hike that's in the city and dies from heat exhaustion. So it's, it's crazy, these stories. It's amazing. You know, I've always thought that, you know, I've always, I've never had a bad outcome in the wilderness. I always thought, well, if I had one bad outcome, I'd be set for life. <laughs> you know, it makes for good books and great, you know. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I don't want a bad outcome. <laughs> no, not at all. But yeah. uh, but one last thing that I do want to talk to you about is, is the regular stuff, like, like just going on a day hike here in town or just outside the city, um, just the safety tips and precautions for that. And, when you roll kids into the mix, what your tips are for, for bringing kids um, into the into the wild, so to speak. Right. You know, I actually have my seventh book that I, I can't find a publisher for, unfortunately. Uh, I've, I've shopped it around a little bit. Is on introducing your kids to the uh, outdoors in a safe manner. And the reason I, I, I've written the book is because I was on so many TV shows about kids that have lost or disappeared that I realized that our parents, weren't properly prepared themselves, and yet they weren't preparing their kids uh, in a way that was going to bring them home safely if something bad went wrong. 
So, you know, I, I firmly believe that when we go to the wilderness with our kids, we should, we should first introduce them in our backyard. We should, we should do some backyard camping with them. And then we should go to something like a KOA campground with them, you know, very established with showers and bathrooms and so on. And then a, and then a car camping trip that maybe is a little bit away from, you know, what the modern conveniences show us. And then we can really start to take them on adventures if we're going to do anything that lasts more than a day. Um, so it's a very progressive, again, going from crawling to uh, walking and then to running um, so that they're comfortable with it, they're not nervous, and that they're going to enjoy it. And they're, going to, they're going to talk about it and they're going to be enthused about it. You know, for the day hike, in the same breath as, as before we get them even to that KOA campground, we're going to talk to them about survival and what it means. And we're going to use the hug-a-tree approach. I love hug-a-tree. You know, the people who thought that up and realized how important that concept or just that phrase can be to keeping kids alive were, were remarkable. They're just geniuses in my opinion. But the whole hug-a-tree concept of teaching our kids, if for some reason you get separated from me, you stay, and that's what hug-a-tree means basically, you stay right here, you don't move. I will come and get you. So I teach, I teach my kids, a, a, and I've got this on my website actually, if anybody wants to go to gregdavenport.com and they, and they go to the uh, I think it's on the Media Kids page. But I teach my kids that the first thing they do if they're in a survival situation is to stop and stay put. And the next thing is to meet their needs. So stop and stay put. If there's a tree there, hug it, get under it. But in meeting their needs or keep their clothes dry, and my kid carries a little shelter, an all-weather uh, sports blanket, not those cheap, flimsy things, but a thick, pliable, all-weather sports blanket. And my kid knows to wrap himself around that. But that sports blanket also has an orange side and a silver side, and he understands the value of what those colors mean. And then I teach him to drink water, and then I tell him, here's a whistle. I want you to start blowing this whistle and just keep blowing it until I get here. And that's all he's got to do. But I also tell him, hey, you know, Braden, I'm talking about my 12-year-old, Braden, if you get separated from us, and let's say, for example, you don't have a whistle, you still have a signaling need. All you have to do is pick up a branch wrist diameter and start banging it on a tree or on a stump, I'm going to hear that. That's not a natural sound, and I'm going to be attracted to it. I'm going to come looking for you. So I'm not just teaching him to blow a whistle, but I'm teaching him that he's got needs, and his needs are personal protection, clothing, and shelter. Hug a tree, pull out that sport blanket, wrap it around you if you need to. That's personal protection. Number two, drink all of your water. or Start drinking your water so you're staying hydrated. Number three, you need to signal. And if you don't have a whistle or a signal mirror, just bang on the tree or whatever, and we'll find you. And then I teach them the third thing. So the first one is stop, stay put. The second one is meet your needs. The third thing is keep the faith. And these kids need to understand that keeping the faith means that I'm looking for them. I love them. I care about them. And I'm going to do everything I can in my power to find them. And they need to know that because, remember, the will to survive is so key in the ability to come through these situations okay. And so we need to instill that in our kids. But not scaring them to death, but instill it. And then when I go out with Braden when he was young, and we, we actually did a TV show on this for Hallmark, I think. When, when he was young, we used to stop, and I would drill him on it, fun drills. You know, say, all right, man, here we go. What are you going to do? And, and he would go through the steps. So we, we rehearsed it. You know, we practiced it. We rehearsed it. We test him on it. And then I feel comfortable um, with going out with him. But above all means, I try everything I can to never be separated from him, which hasn't happened yet, and I hope it never does. Those are all great tips. And, and you're right, teaching them at an early age and not taking that information for granted uh, oh, or, yeah. or hoping that they're going to learn it from the Boy Scouts or, right. or the Girl Scouts or school. 
Well, we forget Daniel Boone had parents. I mean, we all think our kids have these innate skills, and, and they don't. They, they have to learn. Even Daniel Boone had to learn how to survive in the wilderness. So we need to put that same respect on our children and realize that they're not innate. It's a learned skill, and, they, and we need to teach them. Well, the thing is, too, in this day and age where we're so disconnected from nature, you know, we're in front of our computers, we're on our cell phones, we're in front of the TV, you know, we forget basic skills that we 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 needed to have as humans growing up until, you know, the modern age. So I think it's, it's that much harder for kids to really grasp that unless they're really taught it and put put in those situations. Right, it is. I mean, and, and, and kids are invincible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I was invincible. Now on a cold night when I get up in the morning, I'm like, oh, my gosh, my back. <laughs> I'm dying here. <laughs> Uh, but kids, they're invincible, so they don't recognize that mortality issue and the true risk behind their behavior sometimes. Well, I think that's that's actually the uh, the hubris in uh, in Chris McCandless. He he was young enough where he thought he was invincible and he could do it, and that his ego got him. You know, so so yeah, just just having the the knowledge uh, and and putting your ego on the back burner will uh, will make for a much better adventure or just. Uh, survival, I guess, in any situation. Yeah, pride can be a good thing, but it can also be one of the most destructive things uh, that impacts our survivability. Absolutely. So where can we find out more about you and your tips and, and anything else you got going on? Uh, you know, if your readers are interested, Carolyn, they can just go to gregdavenport.com and, and uh, feel free to send me an email if they want. I'd be more than happy to answer any of their questions. Sounds great. I think you have great tips, real tips, pe- tips that people can actually apply in real-world situations, and uh, I'm excited that you were able to make it on the show today. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Excellent. Looking forward to uh, to learning more about your survival stuff and getting your books. Right on. You take care, and happy trails to you. Thanks so much, everybody. Don't go anywhere, because we'll be right back. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Okie doke, and this is uh, an almost a wrap for Healthy Voyager Radio this week. Make sure you visit gregdavenport.com for more information on him, his survival tips, his books, as well as upcoming speaking engagements. As for me, of course, I'm on Twitter at Healthy Voyager. On Facebook, just look up the Healthy Voyager fan page, uh, as well as the YouTube channel for Healthy Voyager. And everything, of course, can be found at HealthyVoyager.com. Join the social networking site, build a profile, uh, sign up for the weekly newsletter where you get all the newest information and recipes as well as deals and coupons for all sorts of stuff. So be sure to sign up for the newsletter. And I'd like to thank Greg Davenport one more time for all of his great info today. Be sure to check out podcasts of today's show as well as 
past shows on HealthyVoyager.com, as well as on iTunes and Zoom, where you can subscribe. Be sure to join me next week as I welcome the filmmakers of the Academy Award-winning documentary, The Cove, as well as famed vegan author, John Robbins. It's going to be a great show. And before we head out, I'm going to play us out with a song by Peter Gabriel. A longtime vegetarian, Peter Gabriel was once a member of Genesis. I don't know if you remember that. But he went on to do solo stuff and continue to make some great hits, one of which I will play for you today that seems to suit today's show. See what's new in Peter Gabriel's musical world at petergabriel.com. Alrighty, thank you so much for joining me today. Have a great week. Enjoy Games Without Frontiers by Peter Gabriel. Bye. Yes. Yeah.